quickly found an itchy person and asking him where he felt the greatest and most acute itching, of which, picking out one with a very fine needle, I took out a very small white globule, scarcely discernible. Observing this with a microscope, I found it to be a very minute living creature, in shape resembling a tortoise of whitish colour, a little dark upon the back, with some thin and long hairs, of nimble motion with six feet, a sharp head, with two little horns at the end of the snout. Welcome to Season 2 of The Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute. And I'm Associate Professor Alvin Chong. I'm Director of Education and Specialist Dermatologist. Blake and I are your co-hosts. The quote you've just heard comes from a letter written in 1687 by Giovanni Cosimo Bonomo, an Italian naval physician who was the first to describe an etiological relationship between scabies and the Sarcoptes scabii mite. Scabies, as you have guessed, is our topic today. Our guest speaker is infectious diseases pediatrician, Professor Andrew Steer from Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Andrew is as well, group leader of the Tropical Diseases Research Group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Andrew, welcome to Spot Diagnosis. Thank you, Elvin, and thank you, Blake. It's wonderful to join you both. Andrew, we'd like you to share with our listeners a fun, obscure fact that they might not know about scabies. Does anything come to mind? So the species Psychoptes scabii can infect multiple animals, including Australian wildlife. There are seven members of the Australian wildlife that it infects particularly the bare-nosed wombat. There you go. Alvin, what about you? Okay, well, my fun fact is whenever I give a talk about scabies to medical students or dermatology trainees, invariably a few people will start to scratch themselves because for some reason when you talk about scabies, it immediately makes you itch. I'm getting a little bit itchy myself. Well, scabies is a parasitic infection of the skin, which is caused by a mite called Sarcoptes scabii. Humans and the scabies might have been close companions for over 2,500 years, and descriptions of scabies can be found in the Bible. Scabies plagues all countries across the globe and people of all ages in resource-rich and resource-poor settings. Here's a fun fact. When someone is afflicted with scabies, they aren't infected, they're infested. So Andrew, what is the scabies mite and how does it infest humans? The scabies mite we're talking about now is the human variety. So its scientific name is Sarcoptes scabii var hominis. It's a microscopic ectoparasite. It burrows under the skin. You can't see it with the naked eye, so you do need a microscope to be able to see it. And it's the female that burrows under the skin. The male really doesn't do much other than help with reproduction. A female burrows into the epidermis that lays two to three eggs per day. They grow into larvae after around three days and then into nymphs and then into adults at around 10 to 14 days. And through this burrowing causes the symptoms of scabies, which is severe itch. It also can lead to secondary infection with bacteria and it can also lead to complications of those bacterial infections. It's particularly common in resource poor settings. And we think it affects around about 200 million people around the world at any one time. Wow, that's uh, certainly a lot of people. And that male mite sure does have a enviable lifestyle. 
So Alvin, would you see scabies much as a dermatologist in Melbourne? Well, yes, I, I see about 10 to 15 cases per year, usually sporadic, but occasionally in, in settings of outbreaks, for example, let's say from, from an infestal hospital ward or from a nursing home. But that's not that many, just about 10 to 15 per year. Andrew, do we see scabies much in Australia overall? And are there particular communities that are more affected than others? As Alvin said, we do. And anybody is it can get scabies. But there are, I guess, two main groups that we see it particularly in. So the first is in institutions which may be overcrowded. So, for example, prisons, also in the elderly in the residential aged care facilities. And then the other group is amongst Indigenous Australians, particularly in the northern part of Australia. There have been reports of prevalence of up to 35% of people in some of these communities being infested with scabies. So it's a really important public health problem in Australia among Indigenous people. And how do these patients with scabies present clinically? So generally, when I see these sporadic cases, we see patients who are just intensely itchy and this is not the type of you know you can live with this type of itch this itch is often uh so severe that they stop the patients from sleeping uh, at night or they wake them from sleeping and it usually would have been going on for a few weeks they would have used everything you know topical steroids sometimes even cause a prednisolone and it helps a little but uh, not enough and the, the, the reason why these patients are itchy is because scabies mites actually cause a, a very severe hypersensitivity reaction. So to understand the clinical presentation, we, we almost need to know a little bit of a life cycle. So when the mite gets onto your skin, the first thing it does is it seeks out the cooler parts of your body. For, and the cooler parts are acral areas, so your, your hands, uh, you know, your, your feet, and also the scrotum in men and nipples in women. And when they get onto your skin, they then start to borrow. Okay? And they borrow, they set up shop. And then as they're there for a few weeks, they just keep pumping out bits of protein. Okay? So they're living there, they're, they're defecating into your skin, they're laying eggs. Uh, and what it does is it causes your body to react to all the protein. You develop a secondary hypersensitivity reaction. And that hypersensitivity gives you that intense out-of-control itch. And it usually takes a few weeks for the hypersensitivity to appear. So often when a patient comes in acutely itchy, uh, intensely itchy, they've been infested for a few weeks already. Right. So like basically the mites been there and eventually the immune system's like, hey, hang on a tick, what's this? Starts reacting to it and that's when you start to get the itch. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. All right. And so are there sort of clinical signs that you can look for when you see someone in your clinic, Alvin, that, that would give away the diagnosis of scabies? Yes. So the first thing is that uh, we look for what we call burrows. Okay? And that's, that's where the mites are actually living. So for a non-crusted case, for a typical you know, community-acquired case, there are not that many mites. There are only about 10 or 15 mites. So we look closely at the hands, the wrists, interdigital spaces, the ankles and the feet, and in men, the scrotal area. You look for little papules with a slightly scaly, squiggly line behind it. It's much easier to see with an instrument like a dermatoscope or magnifying glass. When you see that, then you've got the diagnosis. And then the kind of secondary hypersensitivity reaction, you get a more nonspecific, 
you know, like an eczematous type of picture. So, you know, don't be put off by, by a little bit of eczema. You always still, if someone is coming in and they have the, the history of intense itch, um, that's new onset, you have to make sure they haven't got scabies. You have to look for the burrows. All right. And those burrows, they're pathognomonic, are they? They are pathognomonic, yes. So I think that brings us to our first skin tip. Uh, first, there's a bit of a two-in-one special. So scabies is intensely itchy, and it's one of the few conditions that will keep you up at night scratching. And the second part of this one is to always look for the scabies burrows, particularly on the acral and genital skin where they're commonly found. How long after exposure to the mite do symptoms typically develop? If someone hasn't had scabies before, then it takes four to six weeks for the immune system to kick in. Okay, so four to six weeks. But if someone has had scabies before, then it can actually come on quite quickly, usually about one or two days before you develop symptoms of itch. And how does the scabies mite actually spread? The mite's transmitted by person-to-person -person contact, so it's all about close contact. And we think it takes about 20 minutes of close contact, for example, holding hands, for the for the mite to, to spread so that's not that long really the mite can stay alive for 24 to 36 hours off the human host but we don't think that's a, a huge part of transmission it's all about that person-to-person -person contact so it's time for our next skin tip after infestation it takes about four to six weeks before patients experience symptoms after close contact with an infested individual people who've had scabies before develop symptoms much quicker when we treat patients with scabies, we routinely give advice to patients to wash all their linen, towels, clothes, etc., to try and stop reinfestation. But just how easy is it to become infested via fomites? That's a great question. And I, you know, in the course of my research into this podcast, I read a, a classic paper written by Kenneth Malanby, who's a uh, he's a research fellow of the Royal Society, and this paper was published in 1941 in the British Medical Journal. So, so war, it addressed the wartime problem. The, at that time, there was a question of whether scabies can be transmitted through blankets you know, in, 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 a, in a war setting, so soldiers and blankets. So what, what Malanby did was he used volunteers who were actually pacifists. So these are people who didn't go to war, and, you know, and they, he recruited about 63 of them and then subjected them to a number of uh, different experiments. So I'll, I'll go through some of it, okay? So one was to use a blanket one to seven days after they've been used by a scabies patient. Six patients, no one got infested. And the second one, they used underclothing two to seven days after it had been used by a scabies patient. Six patients, no infections. They then yeah, used the bed immediately after it was vacated by scabies patients, 19 patients, no, no one got infected. This last one, underclothing, immediately after it was removed from a scabies patient. 32 patients, uh, and 30 did not get infected, and two got infected. So from there, he concluded that fomites weren't really the way they, they spread. And then the kind of addendum to it was, say, um, you know, four of the patients were uh, shared the bed of someone who actually had scabies, and of the four, three of them got infected. So from there, this is actually a classic uh, experiment to show that fomites are probably not the main cause of spread. It is close contact. Is there anything else you want to add, Andrew? No, I agree with you, Elvin. It's just a classic study done 
80 years ago, but it's just so such useful information. I think doing that study today might be a little bit more challenging, certainly would require pretty rigorous review by an ethics committee. Oh, yes. And are there any risk factors that can predispose to someone becoming infested with scabies? I think there are two main risk factors, the first being the most important, and that is overcrowding. And overcrowding leads to increased person-to-person contact and therefore increased transmission. And that's why we see the disease more commonly in children, particularly school-aged children. So in the parts of the world where I work, often school classrooms are quite crowded. So there's a lot of person-to-person contact. So overcrowding is absolutely critical. And then the second is having a problem with your immune system, either because you're being treated with, for example, steroids, or you have an underlying disease like HIV or HTLV1, or as you're becoming quite old. And that puts people at risk of both ordinary scabies, but also crusted scabies, which we'll come to speak about. That brings us to our next skin tip. So the main risk factor for scabies infection is actually overcrowding. And immunosuppression, no matter what the cause, old age or HIV, can predispose you to, uh, to scabies and also more severe forms of scabies. So how are scabies diagnosed? Are there any tests that can be helpful in confirming the diagnosis? Well, scabies is mainly diagnosed clinically. So we look for the burrows and they can be seen with the naked eye, but we usually use uh, instruments that help us. And here, demoscopy is very useful. When you put the dermatoscope on a burrow, you can see uh, a little triangle, we call it a delta sign, so, and that's actually where the scabies mite is. And then following behind the triangle is often a little squiggly line, and then that's where they have burrowed. So that's actually very sensitive and specific. Now, I also uh, use the old school method of taking a scraping of the burrow and putting it on a drop of potassium hydroxide and looking at it under light microscope. and when you do that and you and you you can then see the mite and you can see the eggs you can see scabies feces and when you show that to a patient uh, you get 100% compliance but not everyone has a light microscope i do and i i take great delight in using it all the time andrew there's some newer techniques out there can you can you take us through some of them yeah thanks Elvin. i wanted to touch on three things the first is at the start of this year our group, the International Alliance for the Control of Scabies, or IACS, released diagnostic criteria, which we think is helpful. So these criteria were developed through a consensus process of about 60 dermatologists around the world, and they're in three levels. So the first level we call confirmed scabies, where you can actually, as you were saying, you can see a mite, you can see eggs or feces. So there's visualisation. The second level is what we call clinical scabies. So seeing a burrow or seeing lesions in a typical lesions in a, in a distribution that not much else can cause that, for example, in around the male genitalia. And then the third is what we call suspected scabies, which is most useful in the clinical sense, going to be used by field workers or, or primary healthcare workers in more resource poor settings. So that's the first thing. The second thing is using other perhaps more advanced visualization techniques so the one I wanted to highlight was confocal uh, microscopy, where you can see a huge amount of detail under the skin and you can see that in real time. So you can see the, 
the mouth parts of the mite moving and you can actually even see the peristalsis in the gut of the scabies mite. That's the kind of detail you can get. So that's pretty cool, but not available obviously to many. And then the third thing is, it, you know, many of us in the field would love to have a test that was available. Um, there has been work on a, a blood test looking at antibodies, which has had some problems. And perhaps, but perhaps the, the sort of more promising is a, is a direct test where you can either do a scraping or a bit of cello tape onto the skin where the lesion is and take off parts of the mite or, or, its, um, or its feces or eggs and do a PCR test. So that's actually being developed in Australia at the moment and there's some promising results, but it's still very much experimental. All right, so let's say we've diagnosed a, a young person in the community with scabies using whatever method you, you prefer, using your fancy confocal microscope or uh, just a clinical diagnosis, what do we do next? Right, well, if, if you had someone who's just got, you know, fairly uncomplicated community-acquired scabies, the, the first line treatment would be using topical permethrin. And here a patient needs to apply the permethrin uh, from neck down, but they need to cover every single bit of their skin, including in between the fingers, uh, the genital areas. If they wash their hands, they need to reapply the permethrin. The permethrin cream is left on overnight. And then in the morning, the patient has a shower um, to wash the cream off. All the bedclothes are taken and hot wash and tumble dry. The really important thing is that the whole household needs to be treated at the same time to prevent reinfestation. After you do this, um, one week later is repeated again. Uh, and then any kind of eczema is treated concurrently with topical steroids and so on. Anything Andrew. else to add, Andrew? I think the, that's fantastic, Elvin. I think the main thing I want to, I guess I would emphasize is, and maybe this is a skin tip possibly, is um, treating the whole, all the contacts is just absolutely critical. All right, it's time for a skin tip. It is absolutely critical to treat all the close contacts to prevent reinfestation. Thanks for doing my job there, Andrew. Now, next question is, why do we need to do two treatments one week apart? So when we think about scabies, we've got to think about treating the mite, but also the eggs. And so actually, theoretically, permethrin is active against both the mite and the eggs, so it's scabicidal and ovicidal, although some people think maybe it's not as ovicidal as we would like. So we give two doses because we want to treat today, make sure the mites are gone, uh, are dead, and then we allow seven to 14 days for any eggs that are there to hatch. And before they start reproducing, we give a second dose. The other reason I think with permethrin is that, as Alvin described, it's actually quite a big deal to get this treatment in all the right spots. So many people actually do recommend a second dose just for that reason, to make sure you are actually getting all the spots that you want to get. And uh, oversidal being, of course, that it, uh, it kills the eggs. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about oral ivermectin? That's an alternative to permethrin that we've been mentioning. What sort of situations would you use ivermectin in? Yeah, as you say, ivermectin is an oral drug, which is a huge advantage for, for treating scabies because there's not the need to apply this, what can be difficult, messy treatment, particularly um, for people who might have sores at the same time. So bacterial skin infection, it can be stingy to put it on. And we have a lot of experience with the drug ivermectin. 
In fact, the discoverers of ivermectin won the Nobel Prize for medicine in 2015 because this drug's been given to probably up to 2 billion people for large-scale public health programs to treat and prevent other neglected tropical diseases, particularly onchocerciasis or river blindness and lymphatic filariasis, which is another parasitic infection that causes swollen arms and legs. So we've got lots of experience about its safety. Its advantages are clearly the oral aspect. There are some caveats. We can't give it to children under five at this stage, um, which is in a public health sense a problem because often there's a lot of cases of scabies in those younger children and we can't give it to pregnant and breast, breastfeeding women. In Australia, ivermectin is approved for use as second line treatment for ordinary scabies. So after, if permethrin fails, and it's approved for first uh, line use for crusted scabies. Sounds like the uh, Nobel Prize was very well deserved in that case. And in some cases where I was reading, ivermectin can be really effective and or you know, permethrin can be really effective. You get relief of itch quite rapidly. But then in many cases, that's, that's not the case. And the itch persists for some time after treatment. Why does this occur? I think that's because, you know, the reason why you get an itch from scabies is not necessarily just because the mite is biting you, because it may not be. It's, it's your body's immune system reacting against the proteins of the mite uh, living in your skin. So even after you kill the mite, the protein's still there. It takes about four to six weeks for the proteins to then get shed off the skin. And that's probably when you notice uh, the, the biggest improvement in itch. If someone remains itchy after treatment with permethrin or ivermectin is not uh, immediately after it's not necessarily treatment failure they just have to expect that it will take some time for that itch to improve i think that brings us to another skin tip then so the itch from scabies infestation can take up to weeks to settle even after successful eradication of the scabies mite alvin just on that topic at what point should someone consider treatment having failed so the, the general setting is if I see a patient and I diagnose scabies, then I you know give them the treatment. I always get them back uh, for review after four to six weeks. And you know the history is really crucial. If the itch uh, settles down and then remains good, and I examine the patient, there's no no more burrows, then you you've got clearance. But if the itch initially settles and then it gets worse again and then I examine them and I still see burrows, then that, that's treatment failure. And there are a few reasons why treatment failure might occur. Most common is actually, you know, uh, non-compliance or, or mistake with the therapy. So they haven't put the permethrin on properly. Uh, or more importantly, they haven't treated everyone in the household at the same time. You know, so if you have one or two people who, uh, you know, didn't get the treatments, and they actually infested, then you can very quickly get reinfestation of the whole household. I think actual resistance to topical permethrin is uh, is pretty rare. I guess we keep coming back to this problem of uh, reinfestation uh, after treatment uh, from the environment or, or close contact. We mentioned fomites as a way for scabies mite to spread. And, and for people who don't know, that's like things like sheets that have got the mite on it and then you then touch that sheet. What advice do you give your patients uh, about decontaminating their, their environment, their clothing, et cetera? I think the most important 
component of the environment for a patient with scabies is their human contacts. So really important just to emphasize that treatment of the um, of, of contacts, particularly within the household. As Elvin was talking about before with Ke Kenneth Mellonby's work, you know, it's not entirely clear about the role of fomites in transmission. Our studies in the Pacific, which we'll come to talk about where we've treated everybody in a community, we didn't give any specific advice around um, decontaminating clothes and sheets, but we're still able to see a huge reduction in the prevalence of scabies. Um, nonetheless, um, it is very important in outbreak settings. And I think it's reasonable to advise the simple measures that Elvin's already advised around um, washing um, sheets and clothing uh, if, if, if treating a patient um, with scabies in metropolitan Melbourne, for example. Is that what you do, Elvin? Yes, that's right. I think I, I read a, a recent paper um, which went into a little bit more detail on things like if you, if you can't, you know, if you had a soft toy, you bag it up and you put it somewhere for, you know, two or three weeks. Or, but I think, I think that's, I don't tend to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think more important is applying the cream correctly, making sure um, the rest of the family are treated. That's, that's really where the most critical element, I think. Can you tell our listeners about the dreaded crusted scabies? What is it and how do you manage it? Crusted scabies, formerly known as Norwegian scabies, um, no longer. I think possibly out of respect for Norwegians. Uh, so this is, a, this is a really serious disease, but not very common. So classical or ordinary scabies, it's 10 to 15 mites per person. And that's by far, you know, what we see the most common. So, but we do see this, occasionally see this crusted scabies variant. So this is, represents uncontrolled mite replication. So it's essentially a failure of the immune system to control the infestation. And you can see millions of mites per square inch of skin. And that leads to hyperkeratinization and, and a crust, which can be quite thick. We see this in patients with essentially a failure of their immune system. So patients with HIV or on long-term corticosteroid therapy or with malignancy or in the very old. It's very distressing to see it. It can be localized or quite generalized. Uh, it can be very hard to treat. It's often associated with secondary infection and can lead to death, it carries its own mortality. So looking after these patients is challenging and the advice is to admit these patients to hospital, start treatment to topical treatment to break down the crust, so keratinolytics, and then start ivermectin. And so depending on severity, um, we'll determine how long and how many doses of ivermectin are needed. And obviously, Blake, to come back to our previous question, these patients, often in their surroundings, their environment have a lot of mites on fomites. So in that situation, it's very important to decontaminate the environment. I imagine... I, I'll, I'll say something else too. So um, my, my experience looking after a couple of patients with crusted scabies is, is wildly, wildly infective. Um, so if you're, you know, sometimes you, you admit a patient thinking they've got psoriasis, and uh, if it turns out to be crusted scabies, you basically can have a, a huge outbreak of scabies in that unit in the hospital where they've been managed. You know, so we always have to be on alert. 
and they have, I guess, you know, the whole thing about isolating these patients with very, very strict barrier nursing and, and control of the environment uh, really comes into being. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Elvin. And I think within communities where um, there may be a case of, of crusted scabies, you know, for example, in a village, for example, in some of the parts of the world we work in, um, these, yeah, patients can cause sustained transmission and they're often call, called core transmitters. So they are sort of driving transmission within that community. So it's very important to identify them and to manage them appropriately. It's like the uh, coronavirus super spreaders. Something like that, yeah. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about how you'd manage the out, those outbreaks that you were just talking about, um, particularly in like a nursing home environment or something like that? Management of an outbreak in a residential aged care facility can be very challenging. And, and quite difficult, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that patients often present quite atypically. Um, they may present without itch, um, or they may, in, in patients with dementia, for example, they may not complain of itch, and so but lesions may be present. And sometimes those lesions can be relatively hidden and hard to see. The second thing is that once you've had an outbreak, once you've identified an outbreak, that's indicative of transmission occurring you know, for several weeks. So it's often much more extensive than first thought. The, the approach um, to this difficult problem should be a comprehensive one. It should be seen as a, 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 an important public health issue. So often local public health units are involved. Uh, physicians and nurses and infection control need to be involved. So there are four key elements to management of an outbreak in a particularly residential aged care facility. I'll just take you through them fairly quickly. Number one is identify early and treat, and there's growing experience using ivermectin rather than permethrin because permethrin can be quite messy in elderly people. Number two, isolate until 24 hours after the first treatment, and longer, obviously, if the case has crusted scabies. Number three is extensive contact tracing and extensive contact treatment. And number four is um, looking into environmental disinfection because it um, can be because it is so difficult to control, it can be more important in these um, scenarios. Okay. What about endemic scabies, particularly in Indigenous communities in Australia? What's your experience in that regard, Andrew? In particularly in tropical countries and in populations with coexisting poverty and overcrowding, scabies can be a huge problem. In some of the communities where we work, overall prevalence can be 35%, so you know one in three people, up to 50% among children. Many of these adults and children can have secondary bacterial infection, so with two main bacteria, Staph aureus, golden staph, and group A strep, or strep A, and that can lead to a series of, of complications beyond just scabies itself. And it can just be really hard to break the cycle because there's so much transmission that's occurring within these communities. And so, you know, our group and others have identified you know, scabies in these settings as being, you know, a really important public health problem. You alluded to scabies causing more serious problems than intense itching um, just then. Can you tell us, our listeners a little bit about what those problems are? Scabies has a series of uh, complications beyond the itch and scratch. And I, I don't want to, you know, underestimate the impact of itch and scratch. 
of itch and scratch. It can lead to poor sleep, um, reduced economic um, output because of lost time at work. It can also lead to kids not going to school or performing at school. Also the quality of life impact as well. It can be quite substantial quality of life. And one thing I think we're learning more about is is stigma as well. So um, unlike some of the other neglected tropical diseases that I work with, you can see scabies, particularly as, as Elvin described it, being on acral areas, particularly in your hands. And so there is a stigma of poverty with scabies lesions on your hand, and that can impact a person's confidence and quality of life very much. But then there's the, the secondary bacterial infection with the two bacteria, Staph and Strep A, and that can really drive a series of complications. So more severe um, and complicated skin and soft tissue infections like abscess, cellulitis, even as severe as necrotizing fasciitis. It can act as a portal of entry for those bacteria, and then you get invasive infections, so severe sepsis um, and toxic shock, for example. And then after the bacteria have gone, but the immune system has responded to the bacteria, there are two post-infectious sequelae, which is post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is a kidney disease, which can lead to chronic kidney disease and has been postulated as contributing to the high rates of end-stage renal failure in Northern Australia and Indigenous populations. And the other is rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. And so we're just sort of unravelling and understanding, I think, the contribution of scabies and strep A infection of scabies contributing to, to rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease. And remember that rheumatic heart disease affects 34 million people worldwide. It's a chronic disease that causes 340,000 premature deaths per year. For any medical students out there listening, that's a very common topic for exam questions. Andrew, can you tell us a bit about your mass drug administration for scabies and impetigo projects? I've had the the great privilege of working in the Pacific for um, close to 20 years now. And part of my work has, has mostly been rheumatic heart disease initially, but then we, we identified these sort of high prevalence of, of scabies in many communities, particularly during my time in Fiji. And so that then led us to thinking about, well, how, what can we do about it, right? What can we do from a public health sense? And we looked around to other neglected tropical diseases. So there's a department in the World Health Organization called the Department of Neglected Tropical Diseases. It's a, it's a big department that deals with many diseases. And a bunch of these diseases, so onchocerciasis, lymphatic filariasis, schistosomiasis, trachoma, and soil transmitted helmets, they all have an approach called mass drug administration, which is the idea here is that you offer a whole community treatment at the one time to eliminate or eradicate the pathogen from that community. And so we had the idea, maybe we could do the same thing with scabies. And that led to a a trial published in 2015, where we used ivermectin-based mass drug administration in a a study of three islands in Fiji. And to cut to the chase, what we saw was at baseline in the study, 35% of the community had scabies. We just gave our ivermectin and permethrin, came back to see the community 12 months later and the prevalence was less than 2%. So it was this sort of fantastic response. 
And that's led to, um, and we also saw actually without even treating the impetigo or the, the, the bacterial skin infection, we saw a reduction by two thirds in the, in the prevalence of the impetigo as well. And so that's led to, you know, exploring this idea of mass drug administration as a way of controlling scabies where it's really common. Um, we did some subsequent studies in the Solomon Islands and then other groups have been doing the same thing in Ethiopia, Tanzania, East Timor and um, Samoa. So it's been um, a sort of the, the beginnings of an exciting journey and, and the possibilities of, of, of controlling this disease. And have you been back to that community, Andrew, and um, observed a sustained response? Or? Uh, we have been back. We went back at 24 months and um, we saw further reductions in impetigo, which was really interesting. And scabies is at essentially the same level. But it's obviously a critical question, Blake, I think, as you're alluding to, of you know, how long does the reduction last for? How many rounds do you need to have? Is it possible actually to eliminate? So they're all things into the future. Right. And any future plans or ideas to, to tackle this difficult problem? And is there anything happening internationally in this space? There's a, a couple of things. I mentioned before the International Alliance for the Control of Scabies. So that was founded in 2012. And that group supported um, an application from the Solomon Islands and Ethiopia to have scabies recognised as an official World Health Organisation neglected tropical disease or NTD, which was successful in 2017, which essentially means that WHO needs to take action, which they've started to do. So in February of this year, and I think we can provide a link to this, um, guidance from informal guidance from WHO around public health control activities was published. And then excitingly for us, at the end of last year, our group formed the World Scabies Program. And we have funding from the Macquarie Group Foundation of 10 million Australian dollars to pursue elimination in Fiji and the Solomon Islands. And we hope that that can be used as a model for other countries. Wow, that all yeah. sounds very impressive. Can I, can I say something here? So this is, uh, you know, I remembered here you came and gave us a talk a couple of years ago when the when your mass drug administration project and you were the lead author got published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, it's a, such a huge achievement um, academically and also the work that your group has done um, in terms of, you know, not just academically, but in terms of the impact to the quality of life of uh, of so many people so you know it's 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 a real honor to have you on the show well done andrew yeah that's very kind of you but obviously it's not just me it's a, a big team of people and fantastic um colleagues and collaborators particularly in fiji and the solomon islands and a, and a big international network but um yeah it's, it feels like it's the beginning of something but we've still got quite some way to go <laughs> Are there any sort of new innovative treatments in the pipeline for for treating scapies or yeah, maybe I'll talk about two things. So one is um, something relatively simple, which is tea tree oil, um, an, an Australian thing. So tea tree oil does have activity against scabies, and there is a trial um, led by a group in Canberra who are looking to, to trial tea tree oil as a, as a therapy for, for scabies. I always thought that maybe it would be painful or, or stingy, but actually I've applied it myself and it's, it's quite pleasant actually. And then the other one, which is, I think, really exciting, is a drug called moxidectin. And that um, is actually being 
developed out of out of Melbourne by a group called Medicines Development for Global Health, led by a guy called Mark Sullivan, who was actually Australia's Victorian of the Year last year. Um, and moxidectin is a drug that's related to ivermectin, but a little bit different. But what's really cool about moxidectin is that it has a long half-life. And we mentioned before, you know, one of the issues with ivermectin is you've got to give it, you've got to give two doses. But this drug we think would hang around and it seems to concentrate in the skin that you would only need to give one dose, which is a treatment and also as a public health measure would be really exciting. It's been approved by the FDA for treatment of river blindness and the group are now working towards, um, uh, and we hope to work with them, working towards um, moxidectin as a treatment for scabies. It looks really good. It looks actually better than ivermectin, two doses of ivermectin in the in vitro model, which is a bit of a funny one. It's pigs and you put the pig version of scabies onto the ear of pigs. And that's so it's a pig ear scabies model. And in that model, moxidectin um, looks as good, if not superior to ivermectin. So watch wow. this. I think it's a really interesting area. It's very interesting and sounds quite promising. All right. So I think that leads us to our final questions. So Alvin, they say you aren't a true dermatologist until you've contracted scabies from one of your patients. Comments, thoughts, do you have a scabies story you might want to share with our listeners? Okay, well, you know, I, I have been infested, so I am a true dermatologist, but it was, it was when, when I got it, it was after seeing a, three or four scabies patients in a week. And then I was in bed and then my ankle started to itch and I went, nah, I can't be. And you know, the kind of denial kicks in, can't be scabies, what I'm taking off. But sure enough, the itch got worse and worse. And then the next thing you know, you know, I felt that my hands were getting a bit itchy and I thought, look, Elvin, don't be an idiot. This is scabies. So my whole family got treated, the bed clothes thing, it took hours. So I am a true dermatologist. I've got a couple of other stories. So the first thing is actually, it's actually very easy to miss scabies. So I remembered uh, an elderly gentleman coming with what looks like a drug rash and uh, um, and a background of eczema. And and so we stopped the drug, but the eczema was just getting worse. So I thought, we're going to start him on narrowband UVB phototherapy, except he's elderly and he needed a lot of assistance getting through the UV boots and my nurses were helping and so on. And we did it for a couple of weeks, but it got worse and worse. And then finally, when 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 I re-examined him, I saw all the burrows in his hands, and I went, "Oh no!" So that's like my whole practice needed, you know, permethrin at that point. Another story, if you have a little bit of time, so I have a, a colleague in Cambridge, my late my late colleague Sam Gibbs, who was a dermatologist, but I did a lot of work uh, researching scabies in Africa, and he was a master at picking it. And we had a, a patient in a medical unit, and the medical team was convinced that the patient had you know, like a, a drug eruption. But he saw the patient and goes, he's got scabies. And so he picked up a solitary life mite with a needle, put it on a dropper of oil on, on, on a glass slide, and put it on a microscope and let everyone have a look at a live wriggling mite. That was extremely convincing. <laughs> Love that story, Alvin. What about you, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I've definitely had a few few run-ins with the scabies mite. Um, you know, during my first sort of studies in Fiji, we were uh, we I think we were at tw in twenty-one different schools, about three and a half thousand children that we examined, of of whom around forty percent had scabies. So uh, I 
yeah, definitely had a, had a few infestations along the way. Right. Well, sounds like I'm just going to have to grip my teeth and accept this as part of my future. Uh, finally, what are some myths about scabies? For me, there are three myths, and we're, I guess we've we've largely touched on them already. Which is number one, scabies is a disease of poor hygiene. That's wrong. It's a disease of overcrowding. Uh, number two, fomite transmission is important. That's wrong. It's overcrowding. And number three, scabies is spread from dogs. The dog scabies mite is called Psychoptes scabii varcanus. And although it can occasionally cause um, very mild infestations, it's very actually very uncommon. Yeah, and my myth is that you can half treat scabies. You can't, okay? So if you're treating scabies, it's gotta be complete. You gotta treat the whole household. You go hard or you get reinfested again. Well, on that note, I think we might bring this episode to a close. This episode has just scratched the surface of scabies, but hopefully it's scratched your itch on the topic. The next time you scratch yourself, just think you might have scabies. And on that note, we'll wrap up this episode. Thank you, Andrew, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you, Elvin and Blake. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Uh, we also would like to thank Joe Coglin and Peter Monaghan at the Skin Health Institute. So we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. This podcast was recorded using Zoom at the time of stage four restrictions due to the coronavirus pandemic in Melbourne. For Australian GPs listening, you can receive RACGP CPD activity points for listening to Spot Diagnosis. We are also running workshops for GPs. For further information, please visit our website on spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions.